Now that we're getting back on the road, the stops we make seem more special than before. Stop to see a friend. Stop at your favorite store. Stop at the places you missed most. And to keep you going between those stops, there's Shell. Stopping to fill up with our best fuel ever. Save with the Fuel Rewards Program. And to get snacks and essentials that can save you even more at the pump. That's just a few of the ways Shell helps you make the most of the stop you need to make. See full terms and conditions at fuelrewards.com. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respects to them and their cultures and to elders both past, present and emerging. <laughs> oh no, it's back. Welcome back to Murder in the Land of Oz. It just gets more like sounding like it's coming out the end of a balloon every time. <laughs> I was going for like a Dixie Chicks. Wide open spaces. You know, that one. I'm extremely familiar with the Dixie Chicks. <laughs> That's We're not what they sound like. Painfully aware of the Dixie Chicks. Hi everybody. Um, welcome to our second episode for our Northern Territory season. Um, First off, some things to talk about. We have our two new Patreons. Uh, We've got Alyssa and we've got Jill. So thank you so much for joining our Patreon family. Yay. Thank you. Thank you so much for your support. Um, As we say every episode, you can become a Mitlu Patreon. Um, The Patreon link will be in the show notes. Um, There's different like tiers of um, like what money you want to donate to the podcast, which all goes towards like us funding this podcast and like going towards research and all that sort of stuff um what else do we want to talk about obviously um for the people that are obviously here in australia and for the people that are overseas you are probably painfully aware of the uh dire situation that is going on in our country at the moment um the country is on fire um both places the country are, the country is on fire like literally on fire um both places just for you know the people who probably don't know like where Ellen and I are in comparison to where the fires are. We are both safe. We are both fine. Um, but yeah, it's climate change is real folks. It's climate change real. is real. It's happening. People are dying. Yep. I think it's very important to remember that the 25 people who have lost their lives so far are victims of climate change. They are. Don't let anybody tell you twice. No. That is what has happened. That is they are climate change casualties and fuck the government. Fuck the government. Um, so we'll put some links into the show notes of um, different organisations around the country that you can donate to. Um, obviously, a lot of people are donating to the New South Wales Rural Fire Service, but they're like literally the entire country is affected by these um, fires at the moment. So there's a lot of different organisations that you can um, support in order for us to combat this uh, disaster that we're in the middle of, um, especially the billions of um, native Australian wildlife that we have lost, which is really going to fuck our ecosystem up. Mm-hmm. Cool. I think the most recent estimates are 1.5 billion animals lost that their lives and 8.4 million hectares of land. Holy shit. Um, so, yes, uh, we'll put some links in the show notes of where you can go and donate. Um, what's some other news? We did a check-in before. Um, so, collectively, between Zane, Ellen and myself, we're sitting at about a 3.5, so not great. Um, I was hospitalised yesterday morning. Um, so coming off that like saline drip vibe it was very scary um I felt like such an adult by myself in the emergency room at 4 a.m um I'm fine that's when you know you've grown up yeah right having bad reactions but like I will say like don't just go to the emergency room for nothing the out of hours doctor was all booked up I rang the one three health phone line at like three in the morning and spoke to a registered nurse and like went through all of the system, like the symptoms of like what was going on and everything. And it was very real. And she told me to go to the emergency room, hence why I did. Um, and I look, I don't understand every time I go to the MARTA, which is generally for an emergency, like I've had um, this time was a reaction to a really, really bad reaction to antibiotics. The last time was when my appendix was almost about to rupture and then the other time was when I tore all the ligaments in my foot. Every time I go to the Mata for an emergency, my doctors are all gorgeous. Like, (laughs) 
the level of attractiveness to the people that seem to like come and like look after me at the MADA is astonishing. And like this doctor I had yesterday, oh my God, like Northern, like Northern English accent, stunning, like amazingly tall with like beautiful, like ready brown hair. I was like, and I said, oh my God, like, this is inappropriate. This is not Grey's Anatomy. And then he like came out <laughs> to the emergency room and called my name out. And I was like, oh fuck. Because it was four in the morning. I didn't have a bra on. I had a t-shirt and like activewear leggings on. <laughs> and I like, I'd been vomiting for like seven hours. So I was like, I, I can't. And, but yes, he was my doctor and he gave me a lovely drip, which rock on. Hot. So hot. So yeah, collectively we haven't had a stunning weekend, but we're here. And guess what, ladies and, ladies and gentlemen, it's an Ellen Rose Sorensen special. It's a special. It's not that special. I mean, it is. They're all special, but it's not like, it's not one of my, you know. It's not a It's not one partner. of my 15,000 word theses, theses on <laughs> crimes. It's just like a normal one. Ah, well, we'll take it's it. Also, it's also like I really feel like we should have done this for our first episode because it half happens in the Northern Territory and half happens in WA, and I feel like that would have been like really nice little like, like little segue, bridge the gap, mm. taking us on a journey. But today we are going to be talking about the Kimberly Killer. Yes, yes. yes. We, we're yasin now. We will not be yasin later. Okay. I'm ready. I'm having Gatorade. Rock on. <laughs> We're doing great. 3.5, having Gatorade. So, as I said, this partially takes place in the top end region of the Northern Territory and partially takes place in the Kimberley region of WA. But we begin our tale in beautiful Northern Territory. So, as I believe we spoke about last time, the top end is the name given to the, to quote Wikipedia, rather vaguely defined area of land that encompasses essentially like the middle top part of the Northern Territory. Mm. Um, it covers about 250,000 square kilometres and it includes Kakadu National Park and the majority of the Northern Territory's population centres, including the capital city of Darwin mm-hmm. and the towns of Palmerston and Catherine. Now, everything, like when I was doing research for this episode, everything began with like, the Northern Territory is the most isolated, dangerous place in she Australia. Desolate. She desolate. You will get eaten by a crocodile. Um, and yeah, you will. But also, <laughs> it's not all scary. It's not all like, you know, Ivor Milat with a machete, like people out to get you. It is such a beautiful part of the country and such like a unique environment and landscape and everything like that. And it is a big, big tourism draw so the majority of like the state's tourism um are people visiting the top end and this this counts for uh international tourism as well as domestic tourism so a lot of people go to the section of the northern territory to camp and have a good time and not get eaten by crocodiles so one group of people who were camping and having a holiday in the northern territory with a bullen family so in June of 1987, seven-year-old Marcus Bullen, who was the retired deputy mayor of the Western Australian city of Fremantle, his wife Winifred, their 42-year-old son Lance and his wife Joan were kind of like road tripping. They'd had like a camping holiday in the Top End and they were road tripping from the Northern Territory, like back down, like through the highways and everything back down to Perth. So um, they were heading they're heading back west via the Victoria Highway, which goes from Catherine, which is like smack bang in the middle of the top end, through Timber Creek and across the state border into Western Australia. And they were, you know, doing like outdoorsy stuff, camping, fishing, that kind of kind of thing, taking a, taking the leisurely route back. <laughs> Jess hates the outdoors. Um, but yeah, they're, they're leisurely heading back to Western Australia, stopping at places that catch their fancy along the way. So on the 8th of June, 1987, they are stopped camping at the Wayside Inn and Caravan Park, which is located in the Judborough National Park on the banks of the Victoria River near Timmer Creek. So they're there, they're set up, they're camping, they're having a good time. The next morning, June 9th, Marcus and Lance leave the wives behind to suss out prospective fishing locations on the Victoria River, which is apparently like a really... um like the best spot to go to to fish for barramundi so they're keen to do some barra fishing they're like okay we're gonna we're gonna check it out 
We'll see you ladies in an hour. Anyway, so they drive about 10 kilometers away from their campsite and they head from the Victoria Highway down a dirt track towards the Victoria River before they find a suitable looking spot. Now the day wears on and Winifred and Joan are back at camp and they're like, they said they were going to be an hour and it's now the afternoon. They left at nine o'clock in the morning. So they're starting to feel a little bit anxious. They're kind of stranded at camp. They don't have a car. Um, It's 1987. So nobody has a mobile phone. They're like, look, better to be safe than sorry. And they contact the um, police at Timber Creek about Marcus and Lance. And though, even though only a few hours had passed, the disappearances were taken quite seriously with like quite seriously the threat of crocodiles being a possibility and also just any of the general hazards that could face somebody who is so that's better to be safe than sorry yeah anybody who's been gone for longer than they should in the wilderness you're like hmm not great so yes and even though it was technically winter the dry season in the northern territory is still quite warm with temperatures reaching with the potential to reach up to 33 degrees during the day so it's still quite hot you know, it's not it's not super safe to be gone and missing. So the police are like, cool, we're going to look for them. Only problem is, is that they really have no idea what direction the guys went in. They don't really know where they're going, um, if they're going somewhere off the beaten track or not. And the Judborough National Park is just a casual 13,000 square kilometres. Just big. casual. It's fine. <laughs> so... They, they, the search area is massive. So the police start checking out all the well-known fishing locations in the immediate area and they keep searching into the night until they have to stop. Um, and then they set out again the next morning. And even though the odds weren't great, they were holding out hope that Marcus and Lance were fine and they just had some car trouble or, you know, maybe they just found like a real great fishing spot and decided to stay or something like that. So I'm so sorry. <laughs> My Jess ga- is messing about with the cat. No, no, my Gatorade bottle fell over. I wasn't touching the cat, I swear. My hands A are behind my back. story. My hands are behind <laughs> my back. Jess, this is serious. People died. Okay. Um, so they've got this hope, but that hope sadly dies when the police came across the burned-out remains of their Marcus and Lance's Sigma station wagon on the banks of the Victoria River. The, the car bodies, was burnt out. The car was burnt out. So Ooh. they come across, like, the burnt-out shell of their station wagon. Just I don't like, like it. No, it's not good. This is murder in the land of Oz, not fun times in the land of Oz. Um, So the bodies of Marcus and Lance didn't appear to be inside the vehicle, so the police conducted an extensive search um, in the surrounding area. And unfortunately, they find two shallow graves dug in the sand at the high water line. Inside the graves were the naked bodies of Marcus and Lance. So obviously, you know... Naked bodies in a shallow grave, immediately homicide. Not good. Not good. Not good. So um, the Timber Creek police um, secure the scene and they alert the police in Darwin, which is like not close. No. So the police have to fly in, um, in from Darwin, and they have their headquarters at nearby Fritzroy Station to begin a full-scale homicide investigation, and the police officers who conducted the initial search who were constable martin plum and constable brett thorpe were given the very unfortunate task of breaking the terrible news to winifred and joan so the big boys from darwin arrived to the scene only a few hours after the bodies were located arriving around 3 30 p.m and a massive massive search of the area was conducted beginning in the afternoon of june 10th and concluding on the evening of june 12th Helicopters and other aircraft were used for searching, as well as to collect aerial photographs of the scene, and a line search was conducted on the ground. So the police identified a number of pieces of evidence. I want to say straight up, there was no theory. Like, the the police had no idea what had happened. There was no kind of, like, big. They like it was such a, a mystery in the beginning. So, you know, they really had to piece piece together what had happened to Marcus and Lance from the fragments of evidence that they found. They ended up finding quite a bit. Mm. So the police identified the tracks from the Bullens vehicle going down the dirt track from the highway and arriving at the clearing, and next to the tracks were two large blood stains. So that blood was obviously taken for examination and would later be positively identified as belonging to Marcus and Lance, although as 1987, DNA is not hot yet. Um, they used blood typing to ascertain that. 
So the bloodstains obviously indicated to police that this is the location where Marcus and Lance had actually died. And then drag marks indicated that the perpetrator had dragged the bodies of the men one after the other to the shallow graves further up by the high water line. And one of the most important pieces of evidence um, that they found was a footwear impression, like a really, really good footwear impression in the sand next to the graves. Um, and the, the foot impre- the footwear impression had a very distinctive, like re- very easy to see, like rippled sole. And the police took photographs and cast of the impressions to hopefully match it to a particular pair of shoes. So in the initial examination of the bodies, forensic pathologist Dr. Kevin Lee noted wounds to the back that he initially believed could possibly be stab wounds, but this would later be disproved by firstly the postmortem, which was conducted later, and by the other evidence that was uncovered during the search. So near the marks, near the drag marks in the sand, um, like like halfway between like where the bodies, where they were killed and where their bodies ended up, the police found a 223 caliber cartridge case, which police believe must have fallen out of the killer's pocket while the killer was dragging the bodies to the gravesite. So all of this, like kind of fragments of evidence, led the police to reach the following conclusions about Marcus and Lance's murders. So they believe that the perpetrator was either in the area before Marcus and Lance arrived or had arrived very shortly afterwards. In my opinion, he must have been waiting in the area because so what happened was essentially that immediately after they parked the car and exited the vehicle, they believed that the perpetrator had descended upon Marcus and Lance with the rifle, ordering them both to lay on the ground on their stomachs. And when they complied, the killer shot them in the back. The killer then removed um, their clothes and all of their personal belongings from the victims and then placed it inside the vehicle. The killer then picked up any evidence that they themselves had left behind, such as the cartridge cases, and removed the license plates from the Bullens' vehicle. The killer then dragged the bodies to the high water mark, dug the shallow graves in the sand, and placed the bodies in the grave. And while dragging the bodies, the 223 cartridge fell out of the killer's pocket without the killer's knowledge. The killer then returned to the Bullen's vehicle, drove it a short distance away from where the murder had taken place, set it alight, and then returned to their own vehicle, driving back to the Victoria Highway. Later on, they would learn that um, a the there was a sighting by the owner of the Wayside Inn, where Marcus and Lance had also been staying, um, who had heard, was told to be on the lookout for a stolen white four-wheel drive, right? So there was this other car that was stolen. She'd, like, heard, like, on the Bush Telegraph, basically, look out for this car, it's been stolen. So she took notice of a white Toyota 4Runner um, that had red flashes down the side of the car and Queensland license plates. She saw heading west down the only road towards the Western Australian border. So I think that I think that um, it seems kind of crazy, but it seems like the killer must have been waiting for, like must have already been in the area before Marcus and Lance got there because it seems like they were killed as soon as they exited the vehicle and there's only kind of like one, one track leading to where this was. So, you know... Considering, like, the odds of somebody arriving at the location, maybe you would think that he just, like, followed their car or something like that. But according to the police, they were shot basically as soon as they exited the vehicle. So I believe that they were lying in wait. So from here, we know that a horrible murder has been committed. The police don't really have any idea of who did it, why they did it. Initially, they thought because Marcus had been like the deputy mayor of Perth, of uh, Fremantle, sorry, in Perth, they thought that maybe it had something to do with that. But then they kind of investigated that and were like, no, there's not really any dice here. So they were kind of left, you know, chasing, chasing non-existent leads or like looking into things until the killer struck again on June 13th of 1987. Ooh, two days after my birthday. Two days after your birthday. Four days after the killings. So we've got no idea what happened actually in between um, June 9th when Marcus and Lance were killed and when he struck again on June 13th. That is like so very short cooling off period. Yeah. And, you know, it, it like, yes, you are correct. 
So on June 13th, 1987, Julie Warren, who was 25, her fiancé, Philip Walkermeyer, who was 26, and their friend, Terry Bolt, 36, left their homes in Kununurra, Western Australia, for a bit of overnight camping at the Pentecost River. So the location where they camped is around 4,000 kilometres west of Timber Creek. So chunky distance. Fair, fair distance. Um, so they get there. They're camping, fishing, having good times. They were joined uh, later by two other friends of theirs in the afternoon, David McKenzie and Daniel Rowe, who knew Philip and Terry through work. So they spent the afternoon fishing and they headed to bed around midnight. The group all had breakfast the next day and David and Daniel headed back to Kununurra, not knowing, of course, that they would never see their friends again. Two other men who were camping in the area, Desmond Murphy and Branko Majokovic were camped around 50 meters away from the other group. So they witnessed David and Daniel leaving the group. And then later on, they witnessed Philip and Terry sitting on their folding chairs while Julie packed up their bedrolls sometime around 11.15 a.m. They also noted what they described as a white Toyota Hilux with a canopy and red stripes running from the front door to the rear, wheel, rear wheels and Queensland license plates stopped nearby. So... Then they left. We're not sure what happened. So at around 4 p.m. on that day, a truck driver driving a road train on the Gibb River Road noticed black smoke coming from the Pentecost River picnic area. He guessed that it was a fuel fire from the color of the smoke. And so he drove over the river crossing and passed the entrance to the camp. So he's like driving down the road, passes the entrance to the camp. The fire is kind of like burning in the distance and he's like, keeping a kind of eye on things. Then he notices a car behind him that wasn't following him before. So it must have come out of the picnic area. He, the truck driver pulls off to the left to allow the car to pass him and he takes note of the vehicle. Is the car right appeared to be drive? a white, <laughs> it's a white Toyota Hilux. We say Hilux and Forerunner, they're the same thing. So some people described it as a Hilux. From what I could tell, a Toyota Hilux and a Toyota 4Runner are essentially the different phrases for the same thing. Okay. It's a Hilux. It's got red flashes down the side. It's got Queensland license plates. Um, it's being driven by a small man and in the back of the car, like in the canopied area, um, seem to be really, really full of camping gear. Not unusual for a person to have a bunch of camping gear and a four-wheel drive in like the Kimberley, you know. But still, he, he thought that the it was enough for the truck driver to take note because there'd been this fire and then the car suddenly appeared and he's like, hmm, curious. So David McKenzie was the first person to notice that something had gone wrong when he noticed that Terry and Philip had not shown up for their jobs at the Department of Aviation in Kananara on the 15th of June. So he looked into it and he found out that Julie also had not shown up to work and none of the trio were at their homes. David then decided to return to the camping site, obviously thinking that, you know, maybe they'd had car trouble or like the, you know, the dinghy that they were using to fish and had capsized or something like that. Yeah. He drove the 100 kilometers from Kununurra to the Pentecost River, bringing along a work friend, Kim Smith. There they found Philip Walkermeyer's car, completely burned out and dumped in a gully. He also noticed that the group's dinghy was on the opposite side of the river to where they had been camping. David then decided to contact the police who came and examined the vehicle. So Constable Barry of the Wyndham Police noted that the interior had been completely gutted by the fire. He then examined the area where the group had been camped, or where David had told him that the group had been camping and noticed some small spots of blood on the ground. So then he decided to call in reinforcements and a search, a full search of the area was undertaken. So the naked body of Julie Warren was found lying face down on the edge of the river 500 metres away from the campsite. So upon discovering the body, um, a full murder investigation was called. Um, more police officers were called in and roadblocks were set up in the area. Um, additional searches would be conducted in the area with the bodies of Philip Walkermeyer and Terry Bolt located in the, in the Pentecost River the following morning. So Philip's body was located close to the campsite while Terry's body was found three kilometres away towards the mouth of the river. So they removed their bodies from the river and the examination of the bodies concluded that Julie Warren appeared to have sustained a wound to her right shoulder while Philip Walkermeyer had extensive injuries to the right side of his head, two wounds in the back and one in the right shoulder. And Terry Bolt um, similarly had injuries to his back. 
The search had also revealed a number of evidence that was similar to that found at the Timber Creek murders, namely five cartridge cases from a 223 caliber rifle, as well as footwear impressions that matched the distinctive rippled soles found at Timber Creek. So the police believed that the killer had watched Julie, Philip, and Terry from high ground for a fair amount of time before he descended towards the campsite, keeping cover in the long grass. He emerged from the grass approximately 100 metres away from the campsite and began firing his weapon, travelling in an arc around the campsite, as evidenced by the positioning of the shoe impressions, the cartridge cases, and the location of flattened sections of grass. Apparently, Julie was the first to be hit, followed by Terry and then Philip, who had, who was shot but then had managed to struggle away a little bit before the killer descended on them and shot them a second time, killing them. Once the three were dead, he stripped the bodies and rolled them into the river, hoping that either the current would sweep them away or that crocodiles would dispose of any evidence. Their clothes and all of their belongings were then loaded into the car, and the killer drove the car a short distance away from the campsite, parking it in the gully, and then setting it alight. So by this point, it's beyond evident that there is like a there's big... There's a link. There's a link. This is, this is a big, big crime. This is a very, very major case, as you can imagine. This kind of thing doesn't really happen in the Northern Territory or in the Kimberley in 1987. These, these are places where, you know, they're so sparsely populated. Towns are so small. Everybody knows each other. You know, while things happen, obviously, in the outback, there are, you know, people go missing and, you know, serial killings or spree killings, whatever you want to call it, aren't necessarily that much of a thing. Yeah. So residents of nearby towns, including Kananara, are absolutely in panic mode. Everybody's had the news. Everybody knows that there is literally a killer on the loose and they could be anywhere. Um, As there's only one road that goes from Timber Creek to the Pentecost River, the people of Kananara know that at some point this person has driven through their town. They have no choice. There's one road. So they could have they would have driven through the town and stopped there and maybe spoken to somebody and somebody has maybe seen something that they're not even aware is connected to this. So everybody is like big time freaking out. Yeah. Police have um, set up roadblocks all over the Kimberley and Pilbara regions in Western Australia, as well as the Victoria R- River area of the NT. And the police were actively like at these roadblocks telling people, you know, who have probably driven for thousands of kilometres on their holiday and stuff like that. They're saying, turn around, there is an active shooter in the area, basically. Um, so tensions are pretty high. Yeah. Police databases were being looked at nationally for records of stolen white Toyota 4Runners, and the message was being was put out to the media, appealing for any information or sightings of such a vehicle in the Kimberley region. The police eventually do get a hit. A white Toyota 4Runner had been hired from the Brisbane Airport branch of Avis Australia. It had been hired on April 22, 1987 by a Joseph Schwab, who was a German tourist, and it had not been returned by its due date. So police begin the process of looking into this man, Joseph Schwab, and circulate a description of both him and the vehicle to the various police channels. So for the Pentecost River murders, the police are headquartered at Home Valley Station, which is a large cattle station located about 10 kilometres away from the area where Julie Trent and Phillips' bodies were found. The investigation would be an interstate effort, including the involvement of a number of high-level police officers, um, including Detective Sergeant John Kearney of the Major Crime Squad, who was in charge of the investigation, um, as well as Detective Chief Inspector Alan Bickford from Perth, and then Detective Superintendent Colin Pope, Detective Bob Thorning, and Police Pilot Senior Constable Ron Elgar of the Northern Territory Police. Also travelling up from Perth were seven members of the Western Australian Tactical Response Group. So officers in the tactical response group are specially trained for high-risk situations, including, to quote Wikipedia, dealing with armed defenders, attending sieges and civil disorder incidents, protecting endangered witnesses, undertaking searches of premises, securing and escorting dangerous prisoners, heads of states, VIPs, and internationally protected persons, as well as the state's counterterrorism responsibility. So these are like part cop, part military kind of like SWAT team Robocops <laughs> Robocops they're like the big dogs so it's it's easy to understand why they were brought in considering like at this point the search for the killer is like a full-on manhunt they're yeah. like we are finding him and we are getting him yeah. you know so 
the TRG, um, the TRG need to conduct a search of the area. But as I've said, ad nauseum now, the search area is fucking huge. Mm. So they used, um, they searched cattle stations and abandoned homesteads. Again, these cattle stations are like millions of square kilometers, like wide, you know, it's huge. Um, they use aircraft to search for like plumes of dust, like that would be kicked up by a vehicle, like traveling along dusty roads. Right. Because there's been all these roadblocks, they're like anybody who's driving is possibly the killer. Um, and despite you know the fact that this is like such a such a well organized and massive undertaking, it is kind of like looking for a needle in a haystack, and the police are really in need of a breakthrough. And one comes on the nineteenth of June. This is this story is amazing. <laughs> so this guy, you should have just seen everybody. Um, Ellen Rose's hand gestures just then. <laughs> They were beautiful. They were an Italian grandmother claiming that you haven't eaten enough pasta. So Peter Ludenegger, he's a helicopter pilot and he's at work mustering horses at Jubilee Down Station in Fitzroy Crossing. As you do. Which is just a light 800 kilometres away from the Pentecost River. So as I've said, Outback's fucking massive, cattle stations, millions of square kilometres. It's not super efficient for you to, like, hop on your horse and ride out to wherever your cattle are to muster them. No, you got to, so, as we said, Australia, the land of fuck all. you got to hop in your helicopter. you got to get in your helicopter. you got to fly a couple hundred kilometres and be like, oi, horses, get in line. Get in line. <laughs> so that's what Peter's doing. He's up there in the helicopter. He's literally jamming along to Slim Dusty on the radio while doing it. While he while he's working, he sees a white Toyota Forerunner. Oh, camouflaged. Oh, camouflaged. How? With like a thing over the top. It oh, had like a like a like covering a over the top. Yeah. Right. Okay. And yep. just like chilling in the bush on Jubilee Down Station, pretty fucking isolated spot. He's like, this is this is somewhat sus. So, and he obviously he knows. He knows that the police are looking for a forerunner. He knows that there is, like, a murderer about. He's heard the news, so he's like, And he's Alrighty. like, turn up the Slim Dusty, let's get this motherfucker. He's like, <laughs> let's go, let's go. So he flies on over to Fitzroy Crossing Airport, lands the helicopter, and heads over to the police station to let the police know what he's saying. So the officers back at Home Valley Station, um, including Sergeant Matson, who is the head of the tactical response group, were notified immediately, and they're like... They get two helicopters, one from Western Australia and one from Northern Territory, and they head on over to Fitzroy Crossing. So Sergeant Matson is like, okay, we've got to check this shit out because it, like, it's probably the guy, but it's also possibly just like a, a lost tourist or something. So we're just going to just do a flyover and just see see what we see. So they fly on over. They're like, yes, it's the Toyota 4Runner. It's camouflaged. That doesn't make us think that it's a tourist, but it still could be. we got we got to be careful with all this. So they head back to Home Valley Station and back to the rest of the TRG squad and they began to formulate the plan of attack, which is basically like, okay, we're going to go, we're going to have a sus, we're going to be extremely heavily armed <laughs> and we're going to see what this is all about. So they roll out down the highway onto the station where the Forerunner is parked, which as I said is quite isolated, not known to tourists. Um, the team is, like, in full, like, tactical combat camouflage gear with, like, massive fucking guns and, like, vests and, like, stuff. Like, these are not police officers. These are, like, well, they are police officers, but they're, they're like, robocops, as we they're said. G.I. Joe. Like, that is what's happening right now. So they, um, they, like, combat crawl, I assume, into the area, which is, like, quite, you know, that that you do in the trenches um we both just acted that out <laughs> so they they head into the location near the forerunner they stop about 50 meters away from the vehicle and at the same time a police aircraft is flying low overhead suddenly as the trg team waits hidden the person inside the vehicle emerges from the driver's side door and begins shooting at the police aircraft oh no <laughs> He was using a 308 caliber Seiko bolt-action rifle with a telescopic sight, which is, like, essentially a sniper rifle. Um, the helicopter pilots hear the shots. They're terrified that their aircraft has been hit. Um, they radio a warning to the officers on the ground to basically run for cover, which they do. On the ground, Sergeant Matson um, calls out, identifying himself as a police officer and commanding the person to stop shooting. 
it seems kind of like before this point, the shooter was only aware of the aircraft. He didn't know about the, you know, the combat boys in the bush. So upon upon hearing Sergeant Matson speak, he begins firing in the direction that his voice came from. So when he begins shooting at the police, the order is then given to the TRG to begin opening fire. And from there, shit goes buck wild. Like, <laughs> so... We've got old mate Shooter standing um, on, like, the western side. He's using his car kind of as cover. He's just shooting indiscriminately at the police who are hidden behind bushes and anthills and just random, like, things in the outback random shooting back things. at him. Yep. Random bush things. Um, obviously, they're not, like – it's not like a video game. They're not just, like, a hail of bullet machine gunning, but, like, there is fire going everywhere. Um, the police fire grenades of pyrotechnic – tear gas with the hope to disorient the shooter i thought you were going to say pyrotechnic fireworks and i was like what is going on it's it's a party they're like this is this is probably the most exciting thing we'll ever do we're gonna celebrate um we're raving we're raving okay never mind slim dusty's playing (laughs) (laughs) it's a bush stuff no it is not it is a very serious shootout between a mass murderer and police so they, they fire um, this these, like, grenades of t- tear gas to disorient him, which kind of works, but also has the side effect of setting the surrounding bush on fire. Oh, good, good, yep. So we've got the shooter, we've got the police, we've got shots flying everywhere, and then the whole fucking bush just, like, catches on fire. Um, the shooter has placed stockpiles of ammunition in a perimeter around his vehicle so that he could, like, go to them and reload his weapon. Um, but the fire causes these ammunition piles to explode. Oh, so no. fire explosives. Um, one shot that was fired by the police hit the shooter's hand, which injured his hand and also knocked the rifle from his grip. But then he grabbed the uh, 223 Ruger Mini 14 semi-automatic rifle from his car and continued firing. So this weapon, he could. So the rifle, like you need, you do the rifle Who thing. Is this person? I'm gonna get to that bit. The rifle, you need to do the two thing to, like, reload, you know, the rifle thing that we talked about last time. You go chuk chuk. But this is a semi-automatic weapon, so he can just keep firing with one hand. So the shooter then, he retreats into the bush with the TRG slowly advancing on him. And um, to kind of paraphrase from the police report, this is like a uh, the shooter engaged in, like, a military tactic where the point is for him to him to retreat turn back and fire, which limits the amount that the police can advance, which gives him more time to get away, if that makes sense. So three times he repeats this, like, retreat, fire back, continue to retreat, fire back at police sort of thing. So with the fire rapidly spreading in the dry conditions, there was a secondary fear, that being the Toyota and the potential for it to also catch on fire. So the TRG were not certain whether or not there were hostages inside the vehicle. So as the flames are literally beginning to, like, lick up and encroach the vehicle, TRG officer Bob Brown literally runs through the flames and all the gunfire and slams himself into the driver's seat, feels around, finds the keys in the ignition, and drives the car through the fire and away from the fighting, which obviously, you know, it prevents the car from, like, catching on fire and, like, maybe exploding and causing even more mayhem in this situation. But it also um, preserves some extremely important uh, evidence from being destroyed, including the license plates and credit cards of the Pentecost River victims. Okay. So if this if this guy did not do, like, I cannot imagine the cojones it takes to just jump into a car that is... The cojones. The, you know, you can go. it. The the bravery, the bravery that it takes <laughs> to run through fire. Zane, have you ever heard the word cojones? <laughs> I've never heard that word before in my life. <laughs> anyway, he's a hero is my point. Hero, absolute hero. Absolute hero. So as the shooter continues his attempts to retreat, the police helicopter returns to the scene. Right now, all the TRG officers can hear is the cacophony of the raging fire, the barrage of gunfire, and the clacking sound of the helicopter's blade hitting the trees above. 
Smoke from the fire makes visibility very poor, so the police are firing somewhat blindly into the shooter's direction. Then they realize that no more shots are being fired back at them. They hold fire and cautiously search the scene, ready to fire again if need be. They have no idea if the shooter has escaped or if he's playing some kind of game to try and ambush them. So they're, like, tentatively searching the bush, like, weapons at the motherfucking ready, um, until a message comes over the radio from the police aircraft saying that there is an individual lying face down at the front of the group. So the TRG officers go to the location and they find the body of the shooter. The shooter was dressed only in camouflage pants with no shirt or shoes. He had sustained gunshot injuries to the middle back of his spine, which had exited through his heart and to the left hand, and he had also sustained a shrapnel wound to his buttocks. It was evident that he had been shot while retreating from police. Peter Lutnegger, the legend of this story, well, one of the many legends in this story, was called back in to fly the doctor to the location of the shooter, but it ended up not being necessary because it was very evident that the shooter was dead. Yeah. The terror of the past two weeks was finally over and the outback was safe again. Now the police just had the task of piecing everything together and first and foremost was working out the identity of the shooter. Now, as I said earlier, the police had worked out from the records from the car hire company that um, a person renting a Toyota 4Runner was named Joseph Schwab, who was a German tourist. So when the body of the shooter was taken to Derby Regional Hospital in WA for the postmortem, fingerprints confirmed that the shooter was indeed Joseph Schwab. But who was this guy and why had he chosen to commit such random, senseless crimes in the middle of the Australian bush? So Schwab was born in Starnberg in West Germany on the 25th of November 1960, which makes him only 26 years old when he began his rampage in the bush. He's our age. He's our age. Not much is known about his life, but by all accounts, he was like a completely average guy. They always are. They always are. People described him as quiet and shy, but polite and friendly, a loner who didn't have many friends and who never married or had children. Which is like he's twenty six. He's twenty six. I, mean. I was like, I've also never married and had children, but that doesn't make me a murderer. Um, one thing that was known about Schwab was that he was a big fan of guns. So he joined a rifle association at the age of fifteen, but he was interested in all kinds of firearms, not just rifles. Um, Schwab first visited Australia at the tender age of twenty one. He travelled to South Australia and lived in Henley Beach for a time, working as a cabinet maker. He became a member of the Southern Cross Pistol Club in Torrensville, South Australia, and during his downtime from work, he enjoyed hunting wild pigs in the bush. Schwab wasn't the most successful cabinet maker in the world, and he ended up going back to Germany in 1984, where he began work as a night watchman. There, he got to carry a Ruger 357 revolver and undertake proper firearms training, including combat shooting. Oh. Which explains how he knew how to do all how those do tactical military stuff. Yeah. Um, so he worked as a night watchman for three years, and in his time in Germany, he managed to rack up a few minor convictions, including um, breaking into a car, theft, and breaking and entering. In early 1987, he decided to head back to Australia. There was no indication from his family or from his doctor that he was suffering from any kind of mental illness, although we know that doesn't necessarily mean that he wasn't. Um, and there was no record or indication of him having any violent fantasies or any desire to harm human beings. So Schwab purchased $5,400 Australian dollars in traveler's checks in Munich on March 18th, 1987. He left for Brisbane from Frankfurt on April 16th with a stopover in Bangkok before arriving on April 18th, 1987. Um, he stayed at the Achille Hotel in Queen Street, and on April 21st, he went to the ANZ. He went to the ANZ Bank in Queen Street, and he said that he'd lost his traveler's checks. And could he have a $1,000 cash advance? But he hadn't lost his traveler's checks. It was just a crime. Um, so on the 23rd of April, he cashed $4,000 in traveler's checks at the Westpac branch of on Stanley Street in Wollongabba, and an additional $1,396 at the Commonwealth Bank on Stanley Street in Wollongabba. Uh, on the 22nd of April, he hired the infamous Toyota 4Runner, registration Queensland 338PNZ from the Brisbane airport. He gave the rental company a false address, but it was the address of another person named Joseph Schwab. So it was like a fraud, but not a very good one. Yeah. Um, 
on that'll the... That'll fool them. That'll fool them. They'll never know that the Joseph Schwab from Munich is the Joseph Schwab from Starnberg. Like, not, not, that, not that smart. So on April 23rd, he went to the Five Ways Firearm Shop on Logan Road, Willingabba, and purchased four firearms, telling the owner of the gun shop that he was going to shoot pigs, dogs, and kangaroos in the bush. He purchased the 223 Ruger Mini 14, the 308 Seiko Bolt Action Rifle, a 33, a 33, this, this gun company is spelt B-R-N-O, I'm assuming it's Berno, Bolt Action Rifle, and a Winchester 12-gauge pump action shotgun. So he paid a deposit for those. The next day he comes, pays the rest of the amount, and purchases the ammunition. Please hold on to your horses. So he bought 900 cartridges for the 223. He bought 318 soft point cartridges, 100 hollow point cartridges, and 280 full metal jacket cartridges for the 308. He got 480 SG buckshot cartridges for the 12 gauge and 922 cartridges for the 22 rifle for a grand total of 3,000 cartridges. What did he want to do? <laughs> I don't understand. I know this is 1987. I don't understand how you can literally... How could you fucking buy 3,000 cartridges in one transaction? I don't know. What the <laughs> fucking fuck? How can you arrive in Australia and then five days later buy four shotguns and 3,000 bullets and have It was a different time. Ha- it was a different time. And who boy am I glad that I was born in the glory years of the 1990s. Um, so at some point he also purchased a, purchased a fuck ton of camping gear. So from here, Schwab's path kind of goes a little cold. So he travels northwest from Brisbane. Um, he purchased petrol in Diamantina in Queensland on the 6th of May. He got a parking ticket on, in Mount Isa on the 9th of May. And he had some and vehicle... he did not pay that. Pardon? Oh, he didn't he pay did. that. I don't know that for sure, but he for sure did not pay that. Um, and he had some vehicle repairs done at Winelli in Darwin on May 20. So from... April 24, we've got, like, three little spots of him, like, just doing car stuff until the 20th of May. Okay. So over a month of not really knowing what this guy is doing. Is there any, was there any, like, crimes in that time that they think? I haven't got to that part yet. Oh, all right. He was seen at Carmel Plains in Point Stewart in the Northern Territory on the 4th of June by a Barbara Rod- Robertson, and she took note of the vehicle as a large number of buffalo had been shot on the plains and their horns had been removed. Later, the police would find 10 pairs of buffalo horns in the forerunner when it was examined at Fitzroy oh, Crossing. Psycho. The next sighting of Schwab would be on the 9th of June, 1987, by the owner of the Wayside Inn um, at Victoria River. So that was the lady who saw the yeah, car go the car. to the Western Australian border after the murders of Marcus and Lance Bullen. So, as Jess rightly pointed out, the police were like, cool. So, from April to June, this guy was just wildin' in the outback and we have no idea what happened. So, initially, they did believe that it was possible that he could have committed other crimes, which I think is a very astute observation. I... I was like, I am going to serial this shit and I'm going to find these, like, missing persons cases and, like, link it all together and, like, but I couldn't find any record of any unsolved crimes in Queensland or the Northern Territory or WA in the time period that he was um, active but not having his whereabouts known. Doesn't mean that... I can't even describe the look on Ellen Mo Sorensen's face of disappointment of her not... (laughs) somehow linking Joseph I just want to solve a crime. Is that too much to ask? Um, I don't think that this means that he didn't commit any other crimes. Mm -mm. Um, He, I also think, look, this is a completely uninformed opinion because I'm never going to solve a real crime and I'm not a police officer. Um, But I also think that it, I feel like it would be likely that he would have gone to areas and like waited for people, but people never arrived. Or you know, mm. he he found the intent was probably there, but the maybe, intent was maybe there. Maybe like he could have been at some camping ground or some location, and you know, have have the intent to shoot somebody that was there, but for whatever reason, it didn't work out. I don't think that I don't think that it could be possible for Marcus and Lance to be like his first ever attempt at killing somebody. If it wasn't his first successful murder, I'm sure it wasn't his first attempt. Mm. But again, I'm just, 
I'm just saying that. I don't know whether or not that is true. And we will never know whether or not it was true because he died. Um, so this kind of brings us to the, the crux of the issue is that Joseph Schwab was shot by police. So we have no idea what his motive was. Um, so at the inquest, which was held in Perth um, several months after the incident, um, it was held in order to firstly establish the facts of the case and secondly to like determine that the five victims were killed by Joseph Schwab's hand. So in terms of in terms of motive, um, Chief Inspector Alan Bickford from the WA Police, who was part of the task force, stated that he was shooting buffalo, but we don't know what happened then. What made him decide that buffalo were not enough? We've made inquiries in West Germany and Australia, but no one can come up with any explanation. There's nothing at all to indicate his state of mind. He went on to say that, like many mass killers, he seemed to have been a nice young man, but he was inward thinking. Uh, Michael Hawkins, who is the lawyer acting on behalf of Joseph Schwab's parents, theorized that Schwab had gone troppo, which is Australian English for going crazy as a result of the heat and humidity in the northern parts of the country. But there's no, we don't, we don't know why he did it and we'll never know why he did it. And I think part of the reason that, you know, comparatively to other cases we've covered, considering that this was such massive news at the time and such a huge, like, fucked up crime, there's not that much information out there about it. And I think that partly comes from, you know, a lot of people's interest in, as we've said a thousand times, a lot of people's interest in crime from, like, Is why they did it is why they did it, and we don't have that in this case at all. There's nothing to psychoanalyze. There's no childhood to pick apart and be like, well, it was because his mother was really his sister or something like that. We just don't know. He's just a guy who came to Australia, went to the outback, and then a, then killed five people for no reason. And it's such a, it's such a random and nonsensical crime that you, there's, there's – there's such a need to be able to piece it together and to understand the motive of why somebody would do something so insane, but there's just nothing there. Um, a lot of information about this case didn't come up till sometime, till quite a bit after it had actually happened and after the inquest and everything like that. Um, why that was, I'm not 100% sure. But, you know, there was a lot of things from, like, the, the 90s and onwards that was, like, finally information about the Kimberly killer. Um, but, yeah, for such a, for such a, you know, and the people, uh, people, especially in, like, the, like, Kununurra and some of the other regional towns, mm. for, for them, this is like a, and that's when everything changed kind of case you know we've talked well, about like, so many this of them is six years before we were born yeah and the actual thought of someone buying that much ammunition mm-hmm. here mm-hmm. in brisbane yeah that's wild <laughs> on logan road is insane and i think because you know we live when when was port arthur 97 yeah we have we've always you and i have always lived in a world where that is not possible we have always lived you know well we were like four but you know our adult lives and our young adult lives we've never had guns you know we've Mm. never had that kind of experience of a world 96 96. yeah so we Um, were three you know we've never had to experience or be in a situation where this is possible and i i'm so grateful for that oh my god me too i am so grateful for that because you know I think, you know, a person should not be able to arrive in a country and then purchase that amount of weaponry. Now, that's absolutely ludicrous. That's absolutely ludicrous. Anyway, that is the story of the Kimberly Killer. Um, oh, my God. I didn't really know anything about that. I mean, like, the his name came up when I searched the... Murders in Northern the, Territory. Like, murders in the Northern Territory, but um, I didn't go into it. But, wow, the fact that he was a tourist is so... So random. Random. Like, why? 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 And that is such a massive question. Why did he do it? His parents refused to believe that it was him. They were like, nah, you have got the wrong person. And then, obviously, they hadn't. And, you know, I imagine for them, like, you know, you send your son off for a holiday in Australia three months later. And the families of the victims, like, how do you ever come to terms with the fact that, you know, 
your your husband or your friend, your workmate oh my God, or whatever. They just went out to find a fishing spot. They then... just went out to find a fishing spot and then never came back because a psycho Fuck was me. waiting in the bush to shoot them with a rifle. Like, because it's like, did something just like go haywire in his head and he just like, yeah, the buffalo just wasn't enough. So then he decided, oh no, I'll. Well, that's like in in a few um like uh things that I read covering this case, I hated this metaphor, but they were like. You know, he's a hunter who hunts people. You know, mm-hmm. his the animal prey was not enough, so he turned to people. I'm like, I just find that so sensationalist and gross. We don't I feel like because like now we've got such a better, unfortunately, because this keeps on happening all across the world. Less so in Australia now, but we've got such a different understanding of like mass shooters and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and their profile, mm-hmm. and they are generally white loners. Loners. That's literally that's the, the profile. Descriptor. Like you look at the profiles of the Sandy Hook killer or mm-hmm. Columbine or Port Arthur mm-hmm. or this sort of thing. Like they're literally like, oh, it's just this unassuming white guy, and it's like, wow, yeah, fuck. Mm-hmm. So this is also um, the conclusion to our unofficial trilogy of crimes that inspired the film Wolf Creek. So Ivan oh. Milat, the murder of Peter Falconio, and this one were the three inspirations behind. Oh my gosh! Wolf wow. Creek. Good job. Fun for us, I guess. <laughs> I hope everybody yeah. enjoyed. Um, I just I think that what's the name of the lovely helicopter gentleman with the slim Peter Ludenega. Yeah. What? Oh, definitely listen to a Slim Dusty track or two. I was like Slim Dusty. That is not a name that I have heard in quite a while. But wow, what my an Australian country icon! My grandfather loved Slim Dusty. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, Kevin loved a Slim Dusty tune. Slim Dusty is great. If you guys haven't, if you hadn't listened to Slim Dusty, you should definitely do that. Definitely. Um, well, well done. Thanks. Um. So yes, uh, we will be back in a fortnight's time with my next uh, Northern Territory case, which I haven't started yet, but I will. Um, as normal, if you would like to leave us a review with either really nice feedback or constructive criticism, please uh, go to the iTunes page or you can leave us a review on Facebook. Um, We are on Instagram, so if you want to get in touch or send us a message, I am constantly on Instagram because I have no life. Um, So you can send us a message on there. Um, we are Murder in the Land of Oz on Facebook and on Instagram. If you would like us to send, if you would like to send us an email about a case that you would like us to cover, um, you can send us an email on Murder in the Land of Oz at gmail.com. Also, part of the Patreon's rewards is uh, requ- like requesting cases from us. So, if you would like to do that as well, if you want us to like really go in depth, yeah. If you email it, if you email it, we may do it. If you become a Patreon, we have to do we it. We have to do it. We fucking have to do and it. And nobody has taken up my challenge in the patreon um rewards of doing something extremely obscure i yeah. would love for somebody to and it doesn't have to be I australian do it, but ellen will doesn't have to be australian it can be any case any case you want yeah. us to cover we will do it for money because that's you know, the kind of girls we are you know ellen rose will do it for you um what else do we need to say uh, merch yes uh we uh we have our merch store uh we've got your classic uh mitt lou quotes such as sorry i'm bz um where can i get me one of those jim jones communist monkeys which i still think is one of the funniest things i've ever heard I still can't remember um uh, botany solves crime shout out to our i went through, actually i was going through my photos the other day and i saw the photos of me and jess and dr geimer and i just about died i just literally can't believe that that's that happened <laughs> If we could meet Peter Lutnegger, that would be a solid, that would be on par with Gordon Geimer. Peter Lutnegger, Dr. Geimer, and then I would really like to meet um, Kate Moyer from the the, the David and Catherine Burney case. Oh, yes. The girl that escaped them. The girl that escaped. Kate Moyer, the trifecta of like just people who are. Oh, yes, Kate Moyer. Good. I didn't get her name wrong. I was like, I'll kill myself if I got her name wrong. Um, so thank you so much for listening. We'll see you in two weeks for our next episode. Get in contact if you would like. Leave us review five stars, please. Five stars. Cause you love Midlu. We love Midlu. Um, yeah, so we'll see you next time. Ooh. Okay, goodbye. Bye. Everybody make sure you apply sunscreen. It's very hot at the moment.
Let's talk about X, baby. Ah, crappy relationships, the bane of our collective existence. But what do we learn from our mistakes? I'm relationship columnist Liz Bess. And I'm funny guy Tom Harris. Ghosts of Boyfriends Past will chat to guests about love gone wrong and take you on a journey through the funny, tragic, horrifying... And sometimes just plain bonkers stories about that crazy little thing called love. It's like a group therapy session. With two people completely unqualified to be leading it. New episodes drop fortnightly on Thursday, so join in to hear tales of heartbreak and woe and hopefully wind up a little wiser or drunker for it. That's Not Kind of Productions podcast. Now that we're getting back on the road, the stops we make seem more special than before. Stop to see a friend. Stop at your favorite store. Stop at the places you missed most. And to keep you going between those stops, there's Shell. Stopping to fill up with our best fuel ever. Save with the Fuel Rewards program. And to get snacks and essentials that can save you even more at the pump. That's just a few of the ways Shell helps you make the most of the stop you need to make. See full terms and conditions at fuelrewards.com.